Margaret, so much. Um, that's going to be hard to live up to, but thank you. Um, she's right, though. I know you probably energy is flagging, so we're just going to dive right back in. So we do want to welcome you. Thank you for being here today. Um, what we're going to do is, first of all, I'll just like to also say my colleague Beth Flaherty is here. No, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm supposed to introduce Beth. That's my thing. Um, and a lot of our respective staff are uh, not in this room. So there's Julie Field, who hopefully you'll get a chance to meet maybe during open office hours. And hopefully you've already met a lot of the other admissions staff. So let's just get in really quickly um, what we're going to do. So I'm going to go over, you know, kind of the basic admissions. Um, processes, you know, kind of a little bit about the best practices, kind of how we look at the application and what you're presenting us in committee, and also just kind of go through the different uh, programs that you might be considering applying to. And then I'll hand it over to Beth and, and she will go over what I know is on everyone's mind, financial aid, and then we'll, hopefully we'll leave some time for some Q&A. So let me do a little bit of advancing here. Sorry. Okay. All right. So as you see on this particular slide, and you may already know this, we have uh, three degree, well, four degree programs if you count our PhD as well. So we have the Masters of Divinity, uh, which is a three-year degree program, mostly for people pursuing uh, either a formal ministry, chaplaincy, or a lay form of ministry. Masters of Theological Studies is a two-year program with 18 different concentrations. Uh, a lot of people are using that for all kinds of things, including preparing for doctoral work or actual professions. Masters of Theology is a one-year program, usually considered something you're doing post-Masters of Divinity or something equivalent, and it's usually a focus year of research. Uh, we do have a non-degree program uh, called Special Students, and those folks can take up to a year's worth of coursework. And we have a program that's currently not accepting applications, but we do expect it to come back online in the next, you know, hopefully few years, uh, the Whole Family Scholars, which is for Buddhist um, monks uh, from international countries. Um, and, oh, that's just about when we release our decisions. Let's talk about the deadline first before we talk about when we release the decisions. Our deadline is a different this year. If you've applied to us in the past, it's always been mid-January, usually January 15th or so. Um, it's going to be a little earlier this year, so it is January 8th. And we did that because what we found is after you've applied, we often, you know, we review all your materials carefully, and then we have to get back in touch with you if there's anything missing. That process for a large group of applicants can take a while. So we wanted to build in an extra week so that there would be no chance that your application would not make committee. So, you know, hopefully you've gotten a lot of advance notice, but keep that in mind if you're arranging for transcripts, if any of you are taking any standardized tests and so on, and also for your recommenders that they're aware as well. So I do want to just spend a quick moment talking about the PhD program. Sometimes we have visitors who are actually planning to apply to that, but we also have those of you who are just thinking about it moving ahead. So if you are planning to apply to it, the deadline is different. Um, it's actually a joint program with the Divinity School, but the application is submitted to the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, and their deadline, as you can see, is December 15th. Um, if it's something that you are planning to do and you haven't been in touch, obviously it's fast approaching, but uh, I would really recommend going to their website or get in touch with um, their admissions office. Uh, you can apply to both the PhD here at Harvard and our MDiv and MTS programs. Sometimes people apply directly to the PhD, not realizing they can apply with us, and a small number sometimes after the committee makes its decisions uh, may not have been selected for the PhD, but the committee feels they're strong enough to be considered for the master's program. But that's not something you can advocate for, it's just something that they do. So we do you know, encourage you to apply to both if that's something you're thinking about. 
This year, uh, we'll talk about in a moment, uh, we, the faculty made a decision that the GRE is no longer a required element of the application, and in just a moment we'll talk about that, but again, one distinction is it is still required for the PhD program. So that's something to keep in mind, both if you're applying this year and also if you're thinking about it for the future. Feel free to, we're going to leave Q&A at the end, but if there's something really pressing that I didn't cover in one of the slides, if, if you raise your hand, we'll, I'll try to pause briefly and answer your question. So these are the elements of the application. Um, just going to check my notes here so I don't have to keep looking behind me. Basically, um, you do have your application form, which is online. You have, we want transcripts from all degree course, not degree courses, credit for credit courses that you've taken. So even if you've taken a class study abroad and you receive credit or you did a course uh, at a community college or another college, maybe cross-current, uh, we would want to see all those transcripts. You can submit unofficial transcripts and then what we do is at the end, if you're admitted, we do require that you finally submit official transcripts. Um, we have reduced our application fee. Um, it's $25, but if that is a you know burden because you have a lot of other things going on, we still do accept um, application fee waiver requests. Uh, we require a resume or a curriculum vitae, CV, uh, and we have a statement of purpose, thousand words, and we can talk a little bit about that or I'm happy to answer questions about that. And this is a new requirement this year. Uh, this year we've introduced an academic writing sample and we've been getting questions about that. Uh, so we will go over what that can look like. And that's not a very long sample, but at least should be 1,000 to 1,500 words, roughly speaking. And that would be for all the degree programs at Harvard Divinity School. You do need to submit three letters of recommendation and all of these elements I'm talking about, we'll get into a little bit in just a moment. If you are uh, an international student and did not take uh, uh, your baccalaureate at an English-only school, and it doesn't have to be in the U.S., but that your curriculum was taught in English, if you don't meet that requirement, um, you would then need to take the TOEFL uh, or the IELTS. Uh, even if you don't submit the GRE, you still have to do that. So basically, HDS looks at your application in a holistic manner that's very important because people get hung up on individual elements. So one of the things you want to think about is we don't interview you. You know, some schools, and especially in the past, admissions uh, offices maybe had the wherewithal to interview students. So think about your application as your, you know, introduction to the admissions committee. Obviously, you've decided to apply to a particular degree program, so one of the things you're thinking about is why. Um, so it's great that you all are here today, that you're meeting faculty and denominational counselors and so on, and, and alumni and fellow students. By the time you write that statement, that should be integrated into why this and why now. Um, and you also want to tell us about yourself. You can certainly talk a little bit about your, you know, your background, but you want to have it relate also to what you're presently doing. You don't have a lot of words. You have a thousand words, so you really have to accomplish a lot there. Um, so that's one element of your application that's important. Think about the resume and the CV as a complement to that statement because you can't load that statement up with everything you've ever done, but you can get a lot accomplished on your CV and your resume. And believe it or not, we read all these materials. So if someone reads your statement, which we do, uh, we, it might raise questions that we're curious about, oh, you mentioned this, uh, you know, we might go and look at the resume to get more information or learn other things that you're, you've done. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the academic writing sample. This is a new element, as I mentioned. Uh, this can be uh, an excerpt from a research paper you've done for a course. Uh, it could be something that's written brand new that you decided to write, and it should be related to what you're hoping to study here. Uh, it doesn't have to be 
nose on, you know, like I'm interested in ministry, so this is about ministry. But it wouldn't be about uh, a subject that's not related. So broadly speaking, it should be related to what you want to study. It can also be if you've been out of school for a while and you've been in a profession, it can be an excerpt or in its entirety, a professional writing, you know, maybe a grant you wrote or a research for your job that you did. Um, so if you have any questions about that, our office is available uh, after today. We're also available today at four o'clock and we're always happy to talk through with you about that. I want to talk to you just a little bit about the other elements. So the letters of recommendation. Uh, generally speaking, particularly if you haven't been out of school a long time, and I'll talk about if you have, um, you should think about two of those letters being from faculty. Um, and it doesn't have to be from your area of study, um, but it should be from someone that knows you well and hopefully knows you even beyond the class is always great, at least one of those faculty letters, uh, because you're bringing your whole self to this experience. And although I've heard a lot of people say it's very intimidating to think about applying to Harvard, uh, don't discount yourself and don't discount uh, some valuable experiences. So when you're talking to faculty that might be giving you those two or three letters, um, be really uh, generous about why you really want to do this. It's not about narrowing the field and trying to impress us along a very narrow, defined area. It's about the whole person. So if you are involved on your campus and you have some social commitments, maybe some social justice commitments, if you are a mid-career person, you've been out in the field, your business or your, your vocation might, might be a jumping point to why you're doing what you're doing now even if you won't be going back to that profession. Speaking of which, if you are already working out, uh, you know, you've been out of school for quite a while and you don't feel like you can get a letter of recommendation from a faculty member, if you're going to ask for a professional letter, just think about it, though, that the person is still addressing how you might do in this context. You know, you know, what kind of relatable skills would you bring to what it is you said you would like to do? So you're not looking for someone says you're a great colleague and they enjoy you know, lunch with you and things like that, but really somebody that maybe saw you work on a project, you know, really saw you know, how you achieve something or you're really cooperative and that'll really translate well to ministry. If you're applying to the MDiv, uh, in fact, one of those letters should be a ministerial letter. And again, that can be broadly speaking. Um, if you've been doing volunteer work and there's a supervisor at the site where you've been doing that work, that might be a good person, even though it's not religious based, it can still fit under a ministerial kind of um, requirement. But if you are doing faith-based work or you're working in a church or a mosque or you know wherever, uh, a temple, uh, then by all means, do try to get, if that person knows you well, I would say try to get you know, a letter from that person as well. Now let's talk a minute about the GRE. So we're not requiring it, but it is something that you should still think about if it would be helpful to your application. So in what instances might it be helpful? One is if you test well and you just wanna show us that you, know, you, you test well and you have great verbal uh, aptitude per the GRE, but that's probably the least reason you should consider it. You might want to consider it if you've been out of school for a while and you maybe you studied something that doesn't have in your mind anything to do with what you're interested in now. Uh, so you might want to prepare for the GRE. Let's say you did sciences or engineering or a law degree and you want to show that you do have very good writing and very good aptitude in the verbal area of GRE. Uh, that might be something you would want to do, uh, but we're, we're definitely not requiring it. And if you do take it and you submit it, we just consider it as one piece of the many different things that you're submitting with your application. Um, letters of recommendation, obviously, as I said, are really important. So all of these elements ultimately are what we're considering when we think about your application. And it's really important to show, especially those of you who've been to Harvard Divinity School, that you really are looking at what resources we have here to offer that appeal to you. Um, if you sat in on a class and you really uh, you know, thought you wanted to do an MDiv, but after this day you're interested in MTS, 
Um, those are elements that you can let us know are reasons why you're thinking about wanting to study here. If pluralism or the world religions aspect or interdisciplinary nature is something that is important to you, those are important things to mention uh, because missions offices all over the world and all over the U.S. are getting applications that, you know, might sound generic. So you don't want to just do a template and then submit that. Make sure you take time to think about why Harvard Divinity School versus another, you know, degree program or seminary or divinity school. Um, once we review all your information, we release decisions in mid-March and then you have about a month to decide if you're interested in coming and accepting the offer if you're admitted. We do an open house for admitted students. That's usually the first um, Tuesday in uh, April. So if you are able to come back and you have questions or you just want to you know, see it from a different perspective now that you've been admitted, we do invite you to do that. We also travel to some select cities uh, during that month, so you may have an opportunity to see you uh, in your actual city, or one of our alumni might be able to host an event. But even if we can't see you in your city and you can't come here, we make ourselves available and we also will put you in touch with faculty and with students uh, because we know these are really important decisions. So I'm going to, I'm sorry we, our, our slides, uh, they're working now, but um, anyway, I'm sorry my slides weren't working. Uh, I want to give uh, the presentation over to Beth Flaherty, and as I said, we'll both entertain questions afterwards. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Again, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm Beth Flaherty. I'm the Director of Financial Aid. My colleague, Julie Field, is not here. Um, she's back at our office at 60 Oxford Street. Uh, we're gonna have open office hours from four to five. So Julie is already back there for anyone that um, wants to get back there and I'll um, scoot over as soon as we're done here. Uh, but I'm glad that you could all join us today and hopefully we're gonna be able to address most of the big questions about financial aid, uh, who's eligible, how much would you be eligible for, or what would you, what's the ballpark, how do you apply, uh, and all of that information. So we're gonna talk about applying for financial aid, how we determine eligibility, what does it cost to come to HDS for a year, uh, the types of financial aid that are available, uh, give you just like a sample idea of what a financial aid package would look like, talking about funding the unmet needs, so this is sort of covering the costs that um, are not covered by grant aid, um, and then looking at private scholarships, and then we'll also talk about proctor applications, um, which is something that many students take advantage of here, and so we'll talk about that um, at the end of the presentation. So we're gonna start off by talking about the types of aid that um, HGS offers. HGS offers both merit-based and need-based institutional grant support, and students receive one or the other, not both. So here's what I'm gonna say about merit aid because this is the question I get more than anything else is, how do I write an application that's gonna get me merit? Um, and the truth is, is there is no um, you know, magic ball that's gonna tell you how to do that. And quite honestly, in my experience from talking to my colleagues in the admissions office, when you are tailoring it to try to be a merit, you're most likely not gonna get a merit because they can kind of see through the application. Um, what I say to students is, show us all of you. Show us who you are as a student. Show us um, by getting great letters of recommendation, so understanding who's writing those letters for you. It's great to get um, a letter from someone that's well known, but if that person doesn't know you, it's not as useful as someone that can actually really talk about who you are as a student and then also as a person. Um, you know, we look at, I shouldn't say me because I'm not on the admissions um, committee, and I also should state admissions is a need-blind process. The admissions team, everyone on that committee never sees your financial aid application. They don't know who's applying and who's not applying, so that never factors into your admissions decision. Um, and the merit decisions for financial aid are just based on the overall strength of your application, and they're not based on financial needs, so there's no application for um, the merit portion of it. But I will say, it's a very small um, portion of the aid that we give out. We typically only give out about 10% of our aid through the merit-based program. And that's because fundamentally as a school, 
we feel like the best use of our money is to give it out through the need-based program because we do want to be giving it to students that really couldn't come without this type of assistance. But most of our peer institutions, um, except for I think Yale, most of them are giving it out uh, strictly based on uh, merit and not financial need at all. Um, so we do have a small merit program, but the bulk of what we're distributing is through the need-based program. Um, as I said, the merit program, we don't require applications and the need-based we do. And applying on time is crucial. So these are, for us, deadlines and financial aid, they are not suggestions. <laughs> they are absolutely um, required. The reason for that is, is if you don't apply on time, we're going to make the assumption that you don't need the aid, and then we're going to distribute it to other students. Um, and then by the time you decide that you get a, you know, you get a letter from us saying that you've been accepted, and you decide, oh, I probably should apply for an aid now, at that point, we've already gone out with all of our offers. Um, and oftentimes we don't have money to go back and distribute because we do offer more financial aid than we actually have to give out because we know that a certain portion of students admitted will choose other institutions. So when a student turns down our offer, it doesn't create more money for us to go back and redistribute. We just hope it'll get us back to kind of what we had to spend to begin with. Um, Merit, I should also say, Merit and Need-Based is open to both MTS and MDiv students. Uh, we don't offer grant aid in the THM program. Um, we offer uh, institutional grant support to both institutional, uh, I'm sorry, for both um, international and domestic students, and we'll talk a little bit about what the application uh, requires in a minute. Um, but again, the deadlines are super critical for us, so it's important that you make sure that um, you hit those. So for need-based domestic students, so these are students that are US citizens or eligible non-citizens. Eligible non-citizens generally means uh, students that have um, permanent residency. Um, the deadline is February 14th, 2020. We don't have like a five o'clock cutoff. We're gonna give you till midnight, but don't start your application at 11 o'clock on the 20th. Because if you have a problem with the online application, we're only gonna be here till five. Um, so if you decide at 11 you're gonna start and for whatever reason you can't submit your application, you don't want that to be the first time you logged into the system. So just because I'm, you know, I'm sort of a hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, you should make sure that you're starting this process a little bit earlier, just to make sure that you can log into the system, that you don't have any issues with your credentials because sometimes, um, you know, a password doesn't work and we can easily reset it, uh, but I'm not gonna be doing that at 11 o'clock on the deadline night, so just be prepared. Um, and again, so for the domestic students, there's two applications that you're filling out. The first is the HDS institutional application, and that's something that will be available online. Um, those applications generally go live in the middle of January, so after you submit your admissions application, we'll feed in information from the admission system and then we'll start sending out application materials to all students who have admitted, who have submitted applications. Um, one thing I just wanna mention is, because we're bringing in your information from the actual admissions application, it's super important that you actually know your date of birth and your social security number <laughs> and that you spell your name correctly. Um, because what happens is, if you uh, fill out a FAFSA, which is the second part of the application, so that's the free application for student aid, we're matching that up. And if that information doesn't match with your social security number and your date of birth, it doesn't feed into our system. So you might have done a FAFSA, but we won't receive it or we won't bring it into our system because we don't know it's the same person. And we, prob we probably have that happen usually maybe two or three times. We had it happen more than 10 times last year. Um, so just double check your application and make sure that you're filling it out correctly. Um, because what happens is you don't wanna panic when we start sending you emails saying, we don't have certain information that you're sure. I should say, we can rectify it. There are ways to figure out um, we're usually able to bring it out after and then we'll work with the admissions office to change the information. But it just makes it simpler if you're just double checking all your information. The FAFSA, as I said, is the free application for federal student aid. So we use that form in conjunction with the HDS application. Uh, they're both due on the 14th of uh, 2020. The FAFSA you can start filling out anytime after October 1st of this year, but we, uh, our computer system actually isn't able to start 
taking that in until usually late December, early January. But you can go ahead and fill it out at any time. When you're filling out the FAFSA, you're using your 2018 taxes. So it's two years prior. It's not um, the tax form that you're going to complete in 2019. Um, and also, students who are in default for a previous Title IV loan are in eligible for both federal and institutional uh, aid. So if you are in default of a federal loan uh, and you're working on it, it would be a good idea to just kind of call us and, or send us an email and let's have a conversation about when we think that might be cleared up so that we're aware of what's happening. Um, in general, I would also say if you're worried about things, if there are things that are concerning you, don't not say something to us. Um, I always say to students, students say, I don't want to ask you that because it might be stupid. Well, if it is stupid, I'm not going to tell you. So just ask it anyway. <laughs> and chances are, it's really not a stupid question. It's just a question that you're not familiar with. Um, but I think the worst mistake students make is they don't ask us questions and they make assumptions and then they find themselves sort of behind the ball. So make sure if you're concerned about something, shoot us an email or give us a call. So um, another important thing about the FAFSA is that you want to make sure that when you're filling it out, you're choosing the drop down for Harvard Divinity School. And our school code is E00210. And this is incredibly important because if you choose the generic Harvard code, that FAFSA is going to FAFSA jail. I'll never see it. Um, it goes to the college and they get like 30 to 40,000 FAFSAs and they have no way of knowing that you actually intend to apply at HDS. So you want to make sure that you choose our school code so that we get that information. Um, and on occasion, like I said, we're going to send you the emails about applying for financial aid but sometimes they do go to your spam folders, so please check those regularly. If you don't hear anything from us, if you know you submitted an application for admissions and you don't hear from us by the 31st of January, send us an email or give us a call and we'll resend the information um, because you certainly should have it by that point. Okay, and then for the need-based aid, for international students, you're not doing the FAFSA because you're not eligible to fill that out because you're not a U.S. citizen or eligible non-citizen, but you're doing the HDS institutional application. And again, the deadline is February 14th, 2020. For those of you that might be interested in the THM program, again, that's our one-year master's. That's the one program that we don't offer institutional grant support for, the one master's program. Um, we do, if you are a U.S. citizen or eligible non-citizen, you can borrow student loans and you may or may not have eligibility for work study, but we don't offer grant support for that particular program. So we're just going to talk briefly about how we're figuring out our institutional aid. And so our institutional aid is based on demonstrated, if in the need-based program, it's based on demonstrated financial aid. So what we do is we take the cost of attendance, this is the 1920 rates. And please don't panic, that is not just tuition. That's tuition and fees and living and um, personal expenses, books. That's kind of the estimate of everything for nine months. That's not our tuition. And later on, I'll break it down individually for you. Um, then we subtract out your EFC, which is your estimated family contribution. So we're taking that from the information that you're filling out on the FAFSA, and we're also looking at all the information you supplied on the institutional application and we're coming up with that number. And then we subtract EFC from the cost of attendance and that's how we determine what your need is. Also keep in mind that we can't meet 100% of students' needs, so even if your need was 58,850, we don't have a grant program that's gonna give you $58,850 in grant. So we have three tiers of need-based grant support. So our minimum for those that are qualifying for need-based aid, our minimum grant is 75% of tuition, which I think is, we think is pretty generous. <laughs> um, it used to be 50% last year, we were able to change the policy and increase it to 75%. Uh, so we're really pleased that we've been able to do that. Uh, and I think we've had good response from students about it. We also have offer full tuition grants. And last year was the first year we could offer in the need-based program full tuition with a small stipend, uh, $8,000, for our very highest need students. I'll be honest and say we give out less of those and less of the full tuition um, and more of the 75%, but we definitely do give out um, a fair amount of all three of those tiers. 
Um, historically, um, approximately 90% of our students are getting some sort of institutional grant support. So not everybody, but the large majority. Uh, it's not always 90%, some years it's 85%, some years it's 91%, but I think 90 in general is pretty fair. For those that are uh, selected for the merit-based awards, merit-based components include a full tuition grant and a modest stipend to help with living expenses. Those stipends are either 8,000 or 10,000, depending upon the particular merit award you've been selected for. Um, merits are decided by the admissions committee, again, based on the strength of the overall application. We don't go back and review. So we, there's no second consideration. Uh, we don't look for merit in, in your second and or third years. If you were not offered it when you were admitted, then you're not gonna receive a merit. Um, we also say, Hope for the merit, plan for the need-based. So let us decide if you're eligible or not. I often have students every year who say, I either didn't think I would get accepted and didn't think I should go through the trouble of applying for aid, or I thought that I had some assets so I thought that would keep me out of it. Let us tell you if you're eligible. Don't keep yourself out of contention. Um, the worst that we can do is come back to you and say, we reviewed the information, unfortunately you're not eligible and we'll explain how we came to that conclusion. Um, but don't make the assumption that you won't be eligible. Um, unless you know for something, like if you know you have a default or something like that, then you know, let's have a conversation about that. Um, but don't count yourself out of it, and don't wait until the last minute. So here is what our budget for 1920 looks like. Now, this is kind of where people start to get nervous because you look at the whole cost and you think that's a lot of money for one year. But I, I want you to be cautious about the fact that that's an estimate for the 1920 year and that's based on things that we know for sure. Like we know for sure what the tuition, the health service fees are and the activity fees are, but the food, the housing, the books, the miscellaneous, that's all variable expenses. Some students are gonna spend much more than that and some students are gonna spend less than that. So that will also help you to try to figure out like, how can I look for a good housing deal? Um, do I know how much it's gonna cost to live in this area? And I think this is a great time for you to really do your homework and do some research. Um, not just about HCS, but any school that you're potentially planning to apply to, you gotta know what it costs to live in those particular cities um, to make sure that this is gonna be feasible for you. Some of you will come from places where you can rent you know, whole house for $600 a month, and here you won't even get a closet. So you have to be realistic about what your expectations are and what your needs are. Um, and then it's also a great time for you to really sit down and have a gut check with yourself about what are my finances? How do I feel about debt? Because a large portion, not, not all of our students, but many of our students are borrowing student loans to supplement what they're getting in grant support. Um, and so you have to think about what does this mean uh, if I'm borrowing this year, I'm probably gonna borrow similar amounts for the second and third year, so I have to think about this as a whole picture. Um, what will this degree cost me? How much do I already have in undergraduate debt or previous master's debt? Um, and then I think the most important question you'll ever ask yourself is how do I feel about debt? And how much feels like too much debt? Um, and for some students, I had one student, the student that had the most anxiety about loan debt that I've ever seen in my over 20 years in financial aid had $5,000 in debt. And it, at that time we had subsidized loans for grad students, so it was subsidized. So at the time he was really freaked out about it, he wasn't even accruing any interest. I have students that have borrowed $100,000 and have no anxiety, um, which I don't recommend that either. <laughs> but it really comes down to how you feel about it, and for him, $5,000 felt monumental, and I have other students, and I have one doctoral student that referred to his debt as the mansion in Connecticut he would never live in, um, and that was okay with him. But I think most people lie somewhere in the middle, but a lot of us are afraid to have this very real conversation with ourselves um, about how do we feel about it. So I think this is the, really a great time to do that. If you're not someone that knows how to budget, if you've never really looked at your finances before, this would be a great time to spend time doing that. Um, because I think one of the major mistakes that students make is they avoid things about money because the feeling is, well, I don't have any, so there's nothing to manage. So I'll just not think about it. Um, but the truth is, is it's all underlying, and at some point it's gonna rear its ugly head. 
So you should be in charge of when that head rears instead of having it just show up uninvited. So again, these are estimates for living expenses. They're nine months. That's based on the academic year because we don't officially enroll over the summer. Um, and like I said, these are good faith estimates. We actually come up with these numbers based on, we did a survey last year with our students and we actually did quite a bit of tweaking to some of the budget numbers um, because they weren't always reflective of what our students were paying. Um, so we think that this is pretty accurate for what most students are paying. Um, the other thing that I will say is that not every school is upfront about their cost of attendance, and I don't want to insinuate for a second that people are misleading you or not telling you, but I know that sometimes they're not going to put it on a slide in a presentation like we do. Um, they're going to have you go look at their website, and then some places it's really hard to figure out what is the total cost of attendance because some information is on this page and some is on another, and it's hard to get it all together. We feel like the best thing we can do for you is be upfront about what the costs are, and then you as adults will make the decision that's best for you, and we're certainly here to help and to support you, to give you advice and provide information, um, but it's not our job to talk you in or out of coming, um, but we also wanna make sure that you have good information about what you should expect. So the types of aid, we've talked a lot about the Harvard grants, uh, the institutional grant support that we offer, we also participate in the federal unsubsidized Stafford loan program. Unfortunately, there are no subsidized uh, student loans for graduate students any longer. Uh, in the unsubsidized Stafford loan program, you can borrow up to $20,500 per year, assuming that you still have eligibility under your cost of attendance. So what happens with cost of attendance is, if you have a grant for $20,000, I'm just making up numbers, and you want to borrow a student loan for $20,500, that's fine, because $40,500 will keep you under your cost of attendance. But if you had all of that and then a big outside scholarship, um, you might not actually have room for all of that, so we'd have to reduce some of your loan eligibility to keep you under that cost of attendance. Um, we don't have a lot of leeway in increasing cost of attendances, but we do have a couple of areas that we can work in. Um, we're allowed to increase for one-time computer purchases. Um, we can increase for childcare costs, so if you're um, a, a student and a parent and you need childcare while you're in class, um, we can certainly um, allow you to use that to increase your cost of attendance. Um, we can also look at housing on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes a student can't live in our, uh, can't live within our housing budget because they have certain physical needs that require them to rent a certain apartment. Um, so we can work with those types of things. We can also um, increase for out-of-pocket uh, medical expenses. Um, so if you're paying things not covered by insurance, um, a big thing is often therapy. We can use those receipts to increase your cost of attendance and also one-time moving expenses. But when we're increasing your cost of attendance, we're not making room for additional grant aid. Um, it's usually uh, additional borrowing eligibility. Um, but for some students, it makes sense to be able to borrow it in a student loan with a better interest rate um, and the opportunity to defer the loans while you're in school as opposed to having to put it on a higher interest rate credit card. Um, we also participate in the federal work study program. I would say more than half of our students are participating in work study. Uh, it's a need-based program, so not every student will qualify, but a large number of our students will qualify. Um, you have to fill out the FAFSA and you have to be a U.S citizen or eligible non-citizen to qualify for work study. The maximum work study allocation we give in an academic year is 6,000. We just recently increased that for this year. Last year it was 5,000. Um, it's not a ton of money, but it generally will give students about 10 to 12 hours a week. Um, also for students that are in the MDiv program who are participating in field education placements, the large majority of those placements are funded through work study. Um, so that's how a lot of our students are paid for that. If you are an international student or you don't qualify for work study, you still have the eligibility to work on campus. Um, you just don't have as much selection of jobs because not every office can afford to hire a student that doesn't have work study. Because if a student has work study, the department's paying about 30% of what they're making. If a student doesn't have work study, the department's paying 100%. Um, but we find that because we're such a large university and you can work anywhere throughout the university, most students that want to work can find something. Um, and then we also participate in the direct graduate plus loan program and students can also borrow private loans if they have room under their cost of attendance. Um, the graduate plus loan and private loans require credit checks. Not every student will qualify for them. Um, and the credit criteria is very different 
for private loans versus direct graduate plus loans. The grad plus loans are more lenient. They don't look at debt to income ratios. They look at bankruptcies, liens, um, and charge offs, and 90 day late payments. Um, if you're trying to get a private loan, you can often get a better interest rate if you have great credit, but you may um, face an issue if you don't have a lot of income. Um, but these are things that I would recommend that we talk about more once you are admitted and once we have a financial aid package, we sort of know what all the numbers look like. So this is our cost of attendance. We're subtracting the EFC. This is your need. And then this is an example of someone that's getting a 75% tuition grant and an $8,500 unsubsidized Stafford loan. When we go out with your award letter, we go out with grant and we go out with $8,500 of your loan eligibility. You have additional loan eligibility in most cases and many of you will have work study, but we don't put that on the initial award. For the work study, we don't pre-award because we wanna make sure that we're giving the work study to the students that actually intend to get a job. So when you get to campus, um, you'll check with us for your eligibility. You can certainly check once you've been admitted. Um, and then once you get to campus and you find a job, you'll come and fill out the paperwork to officially request your eligibility, and then we'll add it at that point. But like I said, we have lots of um, eligibility for work study. Um, this, the loans, we don't make it a habit of prepackaging all of your loan eligibility because we don't want to encourage you to overborrow if you don't need to. Um, there are certainly additional uh, borrowing opportunities available to you, but we think what's best is sit down and start looking at housing, try to figure out what your costs are, um, what do you think is gonna cost you to live here, what do you have for your own personal resources, did you get some outside scholarships, and then we can help you come up with how much you think you need to borrow. Um, and so in the summer, usually in the middle of July, after the first bill goes out, we'll send you a request form saying, um, do you want to request additional loans? And we do it that way. Um, but sometimes students, it just makes them nervous and they wanna request them early, and that's okay too. We're happy to work with that. So then it's talking about, okay, we know what the cost of attendance is. And again, these are this year's rates. We haven't figured out next year's rates. So I generally say plan 3% more um, than what you're seeing here because everything generally goes up and certainly tuition and fees do. Um, so then you wanna think about how are you gonna fund the difference? Are you gonna try to find an on-campus job? Do you have your own savings to contribute? Do you have family support? Will you borrow additional loans? Have you applied for private scholarships? And have you thought about applying to be a first year proctor? So in terms of finding private scholarships, my experience is everybody's interested in getting a private scholarship. Very few people are interested in finding a private scholarship. So if I had the means, I often have students that say, well, can I tell you what I'm interested in and then you tell me what to apply for and tell me if you think I would actually get it? Um, but we're a two-person office, so we don't have the means to do that. So what we will tell you is what we know about. So we do have uh, a page on our website that has the private scholarships that we know about. It's a small smattering of it, but it you know, gives you a little bit of a place to look at. Um, I think you want to keep in mind that you should start applying early, start looking at sites and figuring out what the deadlines are, and don't wait until after you've been admitted to a degree program because chances are it's too late to apply for private scholarships for that year. Um, I would say if you're an MDiv, I would look at, uh, particularly if you're interested in going into traditional ministry, I would look at the Fund for Theological Education's website, which is fteleaders.org. They have some of their own fellowships, but they also have something called the Fund Finder, where you can type in basic demographic information about yourself and it will pop up some scholarships you might qualify for. I will also say most of these are tradition-based, so if you don't belong to a mainstream tradition, it may not be quite as helpful, um, but it's certainly a place to look. I would also reach out to any community organizations, your alma mater, any social organizations that you belong to, to find out um, if there are scholarship opportunities. Also talk to faculty members at your current institutions or connections that you have um, to find out how did they fund their programs when they went through graduate school. Um, and if you do receive an outside scholarship, we think that's fantastic. And uh, you should ask every school that you're applying to how they will handle an outside scholarship because it will vary wildly. Um, at some schools, if you get a $5,000 outside scholarship, they'll do a $5,000 reduction of your institutional grant. And here, we don't do that. Um, we will use it first towards your unmet need. If we have to um, 
keep you within need or under your cost of attendance. If we have to start reducing things, we'll reduce loans first and then work steady if we have to. Um, there are rare occasions when someone comes in to get a, say for example, a merit scholarship from us and then a great big outside scholarship. There might be an occasion where the two combined exceed the cost of attendance and so we would have to reduce our um, scholarship a little bit to keep you under the cost. But before we would ever do that, we would always have a conversation with the student. Um, so keep that in mind. And then this is just what the page looks like on our outside funding. Again, anything that we know about we put there, but keep in mind that a lot of this is gonna fall on you individually. And so you're gonna wanna do some work. What we also like is if you find a scholarship or you had a scholarship, um, tell us about it because we'd love to add more to the website. Um, and when students come up with scholarships, if they get a scholarship for something that we've never seen before, we do add it to our website. And then I just wanna talk very briefly about the first year proctor application process. So many of you may have had the experience of being um, a resident assistant or a resident advisor uh, in an as an undergraduate. Um, the Harvard first year dean's office hires students to, um, be here they're not called resident assistants, they're called resident proctors, um, but they um, serve and they live in the first year dormitories, which are mostly in Harvard Yard. Um, and they are always looking for really great students to apply for those. Um, they have a deadline, a priority deadline in January 3rd of 2020. The application will be available sometime in December. Um, and you should uh, keep on top of that. You can also send an email to them if you wanna be advised of when the application is available. Um, the eligibility requirements, you have to have a bachelor's degree of equivalent enrollment in a, as a degree candidate in Harvard. Uh, in a graduate program, you can apply even though you don't know if you've been admitted yet um, because they'll wait um, to let you know once they found out if you've been accepted, but don't wait and say I'll apply after because you'll miss the deadline. Um, they prefer for students who are gonna be here for two or more years. Um, we have a number of, it, it's not a requirement, but it's a preference, and we have a number of students that have done this, um, sometimes not in the first year, but a number of MDivs um, have applied in their second or third year. And what's great about this program is it's super competitive, so you should not expect that this is how you're gonna fund your housing. Um, but if you are accepted, you get room and board. So that really helps tremendously. Um, so it's something if you feel like you have those types of skills, if you have that experience, um, if you feel like you can um, show evidence of competency, sensitivity, maturity, and judgment in dealing with peers, professional colleagues, and younger men and women, this would be a great thing to think about. Um, and again, maybe it's not gonna work out for you for this year, but certainly think about it for the next year. Um, again, I just wanna say our open office hours are from four to five over at 60 Oxford Street. My colleague Julie Field is already over there um, and I will shoot over as soon as we're done. Um, and again, if you have questions, we are here to help. We really wanna help walk you through this process and please don't be afraid to ask us questions and ask questions of every place you're applying um, because financial aid administrators, many people think we're very scary people. Uh, I don't think I'm scary. I certainly try not to be scary. Um, but Julie and I really wanna help you through this. Sometimes I'm not gonna have the answer that you want, but I'll always give you a truthful answer. Um, and we really want you to have the information you need to be able to make good decisions about where to apply and ultimately where to enroll. Um, always feel free to give us a call, send us emails. Um, and I think we have just a couple minutes for a couple quick questions. And I will just say if it's a financial aid question and it's super specific to you, it'd be better to come back for office hours um, just to make sure that we can uh, answer that confidentially. I think they're bringing you a microphone. Hi. Um, I was just sort of wondering about a situation where, um, you know, uh, your family is reasonably well off, but you're going to be solely paying for your education here. What's sort of the situation in terms of getting need-based uh, financial aid with that? Great. I'm glad you brought that up um, because as a graduate student, we do not look at parental information. So we look at your information and we do look at your asset and your income, but we don't look at your uh, parents' taxes and assets and information. On the flip side, if unfortunately your family ha was helping you and they have a financial situation that comes into play, we can't make adjustments to your aid because we didn't take that into consideration to begin with. But yes, we're just looking at the student themselves and their spouse if they're married. 
That's, that's better. Okay, so on the um, application form itself, there's a place to list all the other schools and programs you're applying to. Um, and then it's an admissions oh, uh, question. Okay. Yeah, oh, okay, sorry. yeah, that's okay. helpful. Sorry. Um, we have to speak into my And then, so sorry. like there's, to like list all the other programs and um, schools you're applying to um, right. in this cycle. So like what purpose does that serve for the admissions committee when they review that information? It's more informational. I would say think of it, because it's, it's optional. Some students don't list it at all. You, you might have noticed today as we're talking with you casually, you might have said, oh, what, what kind of places are you thinking of? I mean, really, it's more to tell us about you. So for example, some students are considering other master's degree programs, and that might come through in your statement of purpose. Let's say you're doing evolutionary biology and you want to interact, you know, see how that's working with theology or religion or ethics. Um, but you're applying to us, which is great. Um, but we might see that one of the degree programs is you're applying to a program in that or a master's in that. Some students are letting us know that they're also considering doctoral programs. Um, so we know that information, but we don't use it for or against you. It's just more um, informational. Um, so it's up to you. Yeah. Hi, uh, Angela. Um, you gave some examples of the writing samples. Yes. I was just curious for those of us who are sort of mid-career established, you know, in, in other areas, if a publication or even a manuscript in preparation would be acceptable for that writing sample? Something you're preparing for a publication, you said? Yes, yes. If you wanted to excerpt from that, do you find that it's related to what you might be... My current research is, yeah. Perfect. Sort of like then, yeah, I think this. that would yeah. be appropriate. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Uh, and then one really quick one, if I may, for Beth. I saw that about $5,000 of the cost of attendance was due to Blue Cross Blue Shield and University Health Services. If we already have health insurance coverage elsewhere, are we still required to pay that? That's a great question. So the Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is the individual plan and the more expensive of the two, that can be waived if you have your own plan and will continue to have it. Or if you're a student under 26 covered by a family plan, you can waive that. And then we just deduct that from the cost of attendance. What we can't waive is the university health services fee, which is the smaller of the two. So that's if you get sick on campus. I think that also covers some of, you know, if you want to see someone at the mental health center. Um, that's covered under there as well. So those can't be waived, but certainly the individual plan, as long as you can provide documentation, um, and you'll get information uh, if you're accepted over the summer about how to waive that, and there are very specific deadlines for that that you had to adhere to or else you can't waive it at a certain point or they'll charge you big fees. We probably have time for one more question. Hi, I'm a, I, I'm a prospective MDiv, um, and I'm interested in pursuing ordination. Is there anywhere on the application to um, submit an excerpt of preaching that I have done as a lay minister? That's a good question. I, I think that if you really wanted to submit that, you might want to think about that as your writing sample. Uh, we, we do get some ex what we call extraneous materials um, and we don't provide those to the committee, but we will let the committee know you submitted them. If anyone wants to see it, they can request it. If I might, Margaret, just real quick, um, just a plug for the, uh, unless you're going to say it. Okay. So the only other thing I would say is just because uh, I didn't leave the slide up, we also are having open off open office hours at 4 o'clock, but we're in Divinity Hall on the first floor. And I'll let you have it. Thank you.